namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama samudhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama samudhasa namo tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddham Dhammam Sangam Namasami Last night we reviewed some of the initial stages of insight which you may have been experiencing. The first one is the awareness or understanding that there is a physical process and a mental process and that these two are distinct and different. As soon as you sit down and see that the mind wandering is different from the breath rising and falling, then you have an understanding of these two processes what is even more interesting is that we can see clearly, perhaps for the first time, that there is no self, no one named Evelyn, Barbara, or Mike, who can govern these processes. They have their own rhythm, their own force, and their own way, independent of our wishes. So at first it can be disconcerting because the mind is wild and we want it to be other. We want it to be still and calm. And for it to be still and calm, we have to spend quite a lot of time watching, observing. Eventually, we go a little bit deeper and we come to see the relationship between these two. That there is a cause-effect relationship between consciousness and the object that consciousness knows. When you see the breath, the form of the breath arises in consciousness and we know it. The mental process and the physical process have not changed, but through that interaction, a relationship arises. This is the insight into the principle of cause and effect. Already, we have understood anatta, not self. We have understood the principle of kamma, just from these two insights. When we observe the interaction between the mind and the object, after some time, we begin to experience not only that there is no self-governing it, but also we see how it changes. And the changing of it can be unpleasant. But the unpleasantness of it really begins to affect us when we have the third insight. You might start to feel bodily sensations that are cramps, aches and pains, nausea, 
maybe dizziness, all kinds of phenomena that we think are because you're not a good meditator, that you're not able to do this practice well. But when we continue to observe, we begin to notice that this is just the nature of these processes. Consciousness is arising and ceasing. The object is arising and ceasing. Our knowing of the object is also arising and ceasing. And even though that is painful, the more we observe it, we are able to bear witness not only to the beginnings and endings, but we also start to notice the middle of that movement of the object, the breath. This is knowing suffering and impermanence. So already in the first three insights, we've had the knowledge of the three characteristics. Now the fourth insight, patiently enduring through these trials and sufferings of the body and the mind, just struggling to pay attention and stay with this changing nature of things coming up in consciousness, then that awareness begins to mature. And as it matures, mindfulness and concentration also become more stable. And we begin to notice the arising of the breath or the arising of the sound of silence or the awareness of your bodily formation. We begin to notice the beginning, the middle, and the ending of each moment of mindfulness rapidly, easily, effortlessly. This is what happens when you practice. If you're an athlete in the beginning, all your muscles ache. But if you keep going to the gym every week, three or four times a week, then you don't feel those aches and pains. After a while, you become adept. The things that you couldn't do in the beginning become easier. That's probably why this is also called practice. We are spiritual athletes, in a way. Even though we're sitting here, we're not moving, but we're working very hard internally. We begin to see more and more clearly the object of our awareness. You know how it is when you're trying to remove a stain from a bit of laundry? If you have a piece of clothing that has a coffee stain or grease in it, what do you do usually? You get some stain remover. <laughs> but another way of removing a stain is to soak it. Soaking is like a pressure. Having the garment in a bucket of water, it is subjected to the action of this water, which creates a weight, a pressure on the stain. Then you add soap to tease the stain out of the fabric. Water dissolves a stain, or water dissolves grease. Water dissolves even very heavy dirt. Look, a river can move rocks. Have you ever walked along the beach and seen enormous pieces of timber lying there? And if you went up to them and you tried to budge them, but the water will pick them up and carry them. 
in the same way the weight of our feet beats a path through the forest. If we keep walking a path over and over and over again, the bush or the grass that grows on that path will be beaten down and eventually there will be a clear path. So it is with this practice, the fourth insight, which is called Uriyabhaya Jnana. Uriyabhaya simply means arising and passing away. The knowledge of arising and passing away. It's as if we have worked so hard that we have beaten a path to that knowledge through constant repetition. The repetition of vipassana, clearly seeing the true nature of phenomena as they arise and pass away in our consciousness. Again and again. It's a repeated seeing. This is not an ordinary seeing. We are intentionally looking with a purified mind. We have left behind the world, come into this hall. We have left behind the comforts of our rooms, even here. We sit for hours and hours together in complete silence, not speaking, not interacting, not moving, just bringing our attention back again and again. It's like drops of water on the same point, like footsteps pounding down the earth on a path through an unknown wood. And we clear the path through our own efforts. This is the path of Dhamma that we are walking in this immovable posture. Well, you might squirm a little bit, you might stand up, you might shift your posture, but essentially until I ring the bell, you behave so well. <laughs> You're very obedient and restrained. Contemplate the level of restraint. How many people in this world could practice so much restraint? This hall is not full. <laughs> we advertised this retreat for months. <laughs> Very few came. So don't underestimate the strength of your effort. Don't devalue what you're doing here. You are beating a path to awakening. Silently, in a subtle form, with your hearts full of faith, full of trust. How much faith it takes to sit in this strange center, in this strange town. Most people would think it's an odd way to spend your holidays, your free time. But see the subtlety of your work. Having realized the distinction between the mind and the body, having understood the cause-effect relationship, having seen the nature of this movement, the anicca, the impermanence of these processes in the mind and the dukkha that they bring, mental and physical dukkha. Let me describe some of the characteristics of this insight. First of all, mindfulness and clear comprehension of the object are very powerful. The mind is so clear, it's as if somebody peeled away a curtain 
and suddenly the whole world appears vast and spacious. The mind becomes very soft and pliable. With ease we sit, we feel pain-free. The breath is easy to observe. We have to make no effort at all in the meditation. It's as if the meditation is doing you. You are making an effort, but doesn't feel like there's any effort involved. You feel almost like you're just being buoyed along by the breath, floating on the breath. We can observe with very sharp mindfulness every arising, every ceasing, completely. We don't miss anything. And your heart is full of joy. It's so joyful, it's such a rapture coming over you that you feel like you're going to be transported. Maybe you have never felt this quality of rapture in your life. It's not worldly rapture, really. It's transcendent. In this observing of the rising and falling, we have a much stronger understanding of anatta. There's no self in there. We cannot find any point that we can situate our ego. There's nowhere for it to land. So this is a very liberating feeling because the ego is full of all our fears, anxieties, neuroses, all our self-views. We begin to really purify this wrong view in this insight. We purified the confused way that we've been seeing our world and our life with. But as long as this insight endures, we are not confused at all. Now, we see the dukkha very clearly. We see that this is not only our own experience, but this is a universal experience. This experience applies to each and every human being. To know what one piece of bamboo looked like, we would cut it, open it, break it, and look inside. Then you would see inside is hollow and very smooth. And you would feel the bamboo and know that it has a wonderful hardness to it and a smoothness, very, very light, but strong, resilient. We wouldn't have to go cut down every bamboo to know that all the bamboo in the forest is like this. We'd only have to cut one bamboo to see the inner, internal nature and composition of bamboo. Now, with the insight into the arising and passing away, we have cut into the very core of our mental and physical process and seen the truth of anicca, impermanence, dukkha, suffering, and anatta, no self. We don't have to cut through each and every person to find out what is in Lawrence, this being, what is inside Anne? As soon as we see another human being, we know they are just like me. This is an amazing insight. 
suddenly there's a great sense of compassion that we are all the same all of us everyone this is these three characteristics do not belong to me they're not personal we all are like this this is like an awakening but don't get too excited because the next insight can be quite frightening all you see is the endings of everything the ending the endings of the breath the ending of awareness the dissolving of the body everything seems to be in a state of being destroyed and that can be quite frightening and so it goes with the insight into the defects and disadvantages the dangers of this life and this form that we live in consciousness and this physical form but let me come back to uriyabaya jnana inside this comfort level of the body and the mind the comfort in the mind is much stronger we've gone through a lot of physical suffering sitting here sweating away shuffling becoming stiff pain in the knees terrible pain in the body but now that's subdued we can sit effortlessly and the mind is also very comfortable there's a tremendous wholesomeness the mind states that are generated during uriyabaya jnana are very pure the mind itself is so light and bright the joy that we feel is like the sun rising inside of you so your mind states are very wholesome and then as this matures and deepens to observing the destruction it's a bit like life life is birth born into this magnificent world then we get older we start to understand more we mature then there's the denouement of life sickness and death this happens in the insights as well we clearly see that cycle the birth and death the cycle of birth and destruction then it's very easy for the mind to start having negative thoughts fearful thoughts what we see what we experience in the body and mind affects consciousness and affects what we carry in consciousness if we do not practice in this way and we are carried along by desire hatred and confusion then it is very easy for us to break precepts because we don't have a good understanding of number 1 kamma and number 2 how our desire how our hatred or the seeds of ignorance in us will spur us into unskillful action even if we don't want to do unskillful things because our minds are not trained but when we have these main insights into anicca dukkha anatta and these insights mature in us to the point where we experience the joy of such purity of mind it makes us realize the urgency of keeping precepts 
this is very important for our life. We might be good meditators, and we might have all these insights, but at a more superficial level. But when we realize the power of beating this path to Nibbana, and what it can do for our hearts and minds, we begin to have a, a sense of longing to complete the path. We never ever forget that yearning. As we progress through the undergrowth, through the dense forest of insights, we may get entangled in fearful imagery or a sense of being inadequate, wrong sense of being inadequate. Just like in the third insight, you may have been hurting and feel like you can't do this, and you regret being here, and you want to go home. You long for your, the comforts of home. But if you persevere, then you have this beautiful resolve. These cycles continue to get more painful and more joyful. We've got to bear with the discomforts, the fears, the pressures, the anxiety, and sometimes excruciating pain that you might think you're going to die. But it's really only a perception. Don't believe your mind. This is a tremendous preparation for the most precious insights of your life. And you have worked so hard, so you don't want to give up. Even if your mind should tell you one day, that's it, I don't know how to meditate, I'm leaving. We never ever buy into that. I remember a few years ago on a retreat, there was a young man who did that. After about seven days into the retreat, he felt like he had to give up. I'm, I'm leaving, I just can't bear it anymore. I asked him to reflect on how hard he had worked and would it be regrettable if in case there was something that was just about to be revealed to him and he left before seeing it, that all this effort would have been wasted. It's a bit like when you're climbing up a mountain and you know the mountain is 3,000 feet high and you get to 2,700 feet and then all you see is more and more. You're exhausted and it just seems to go on and on and on and you feel like giving up. So in that way, we must not give up. He stayed, and he was so happy. When I went through the bhikkhuni ordination in Taiwan, it was like a spiritual boot camp. Everything was in Mandarin, and I could hardly understand a word. The most important thing I understood was Fu. That's the Buddha's name. The training required complete obedience. We didn't have free time. You had to function like a clock, moment by moment. At a certain minute, you had to be in the hall. At another minute, you had to be six flights down with your robes impeccable, slippery as they were. There were 220 monks and nuns. Most of them were 30 years younger than me. 
There was one old nun in my group, 75. She saved my life. I kept thinking, if she can do it, I can do it. My mind at first was so critical because it seemed like we never stopped. We were always prostrating, chanting, listening to Dhamma talks, which I didn't understand. Even though one of the nuns was supposed to translate for me, she never had time because she was trying to absorb it all herself. We were in the first group supposed to be setting the example to all the others. And then there were some other bhikkhunis who had already been ordained, but they had come back to do it again. I thought, why would you want to go through this again? <laughs> and then I had this idea that our tradition is superior because we sit still and meditate for hours and hours. It took me a while to get into the rhythm of this way of being. I just became like this little puppet that was pushed and shoved from one room to another. And sometimes they run. They would push me, hurry up, because I was not in rhythm. It took me a while to understand how to do this training. But in the beginning, I felt really humiliated, ground down to dust. This was so useful, so helpful, because inside that humiliation was an extinguishing. This was a huge letting go. And I began to understand slowly over the period of several weeks, I began to see that inside all this constant movement, these nuns were focused on the triple gem. Then when they stopped and chanted, there was a stillness, and when I listened to the stillness of their chanting, I couldn't follow the words at all, even though I had practiced following these sutras, but my mind went still. And then when we were bowing and my body ached. It reminded me of these insights all over again. It's this dukkha, and it's endless. Then they would ring the bells. We couldn't bow on our own. We all had to bow at the same time. You think I'm torturing you. <laughs> I went through it myself, hundreds of bows. All together, whether your knees could do it or not, it didn't matter. My ankles were swollen. I was huffing and puffing one night. At the end of the day, maybe nine hours on our feet, we'd have special one and a half hours of bowing, which I dreaded. Then we'd get in the hall, and there was the Kuan Yin, and the monitors, the senior bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, would monitor to watch us. When they started chanting, this chanting was divine. My practice is hearing. I would listen, and I would say, I can do this, I can do this. So I would bow and get up, and I'd have to keep in tune with all the other nuns. After I don't know how many dozen, my forehead started to hurt. I just felt so painful. I thought, I'll keep my hands together and soften the hurt, the pain, just once. The hall was dark, except for the shrine was all lit up. I put my forehead down on the center of my hands and these two hands pulled my hands apart. The monitor bikini 
They were watching us like hawks. So if you yourself were not watching your mindfulness, somebody else was supervising to make sure <laughs> that you were mindful physically. I was so frustrated. In the end, there was nothing else to do but give up. It was letting go. We did about half an hour of silent meditation when we were resting, waiting for the next period of chanting. But the only time that I felt that I could really fall apart was in the shower. In the toilet I couldn't because there were, in my section, four loos and about a hundred nuns waiting in line. So you didn't have time to collapse. <laughs> But then, during the ordination, when I began to understand how the mind can go to that place, when your ego is crushed into a powder, when we came into the sacred chamber, there were ten elder bhikkhunis, which we don't have in our Theravada tradition. We're the first tier, first generation. These nuns were all in there. 60s, 70s, 80s. There were 21 elders all together, 11 monks. Several of them were in their 90s, and one of them was 99. But I just couldn't hold my body still until they started chanting. What I experienced at that moment was the connection to the lineage of bhikkhunis. Going back to the time of the Buddha, I've never experienced that before until that time. I'm sharing this with you because as you walk this path and when you remember that thousands and thousands of disciples of the Buddha have walked this path in this way and you have these insights, never think that they belong to you. You are beating down the same path all these thousands of beings before us have beaten that path down already and we're following in their footsteps and we're doing it too. So you can feel connected to this miraculous lineage that goes back 26 centuries. That should light up your heart, dissolve your ego into little tiny pieces of brilliant light that will light your way, even if you're dying. Even when the nun pulls your hands apart. To suffer those pains became a joy for me. Are we so dainty and delicate that we cannot endure? It's not as if I hadn't had lots of pains on the path, but it was such an experience of being thrown into a very deep well in a strange land, in a strange language, losing all my credibility. I had to give up any idea of being an, I, I'm a senior nun or I'm an anybody. That was the best thing. Or that I've had years of practice, I didn't know anything suddenly. I was like kindergarten. Really, just everything led to a grinding down. 
the most wonderful training to give up praise, to give up blame, to give up success, failure, pain, pleasure, happiness, unhappiness, all our attachments, giving them up, that path just rises up in front of us. And we will arrive. We are arriving. The third thing that I realized was how much the self-surrender happened when I was able to focus on this image of Guan Yin. The Guan Yin represents the principle of compassion. She's the embodiment of this quality of compassion. And so many times when I felt that I couldn't stand up for another second, did that wonderful monk have to keep giving a dharma desana at 9.15 at night, knowing that we'd been on our feet. And some of us were older ladies, and we had swollen ankles, and he was probably 35. Didn't he have compassion? All those thoughts are going on. My mind was full of fire, heat, of wanting to disobey. I wanted to fall down sit down, run out of the hall, any excuse. I'm a Westerner. <laughs> I was the only Westerner there. But I opened my eyes, I looked at the Kuan Yin, and my heart melted. And I felt this loving kindness and compassion holding me. I felt like this grace descending on me and I was able to stand up. The path holds you, but you have to trust and have compassion. This wondrous, radiant, boundless quality of compassion can hold us up. We have to trust. We have to surrender to it. Then we can walk this path to its completion. That's just to tell you a little bit about the fourth insight. <laughs> Thank you for your patient listening. Sadhu, sadhu.